Welcome to the Savvy Painter Podcast, the podcast for artists who mean business. Here's your host, Antrice Wood. Hello, it's Antrice, and welcome to another episode of the Savvy Painter Podcast. As you listen to this episode, I should just be getting back to Argentina after that long painting course in Italy. If you want to check out what it was like, you can follow me on Instagram. My username is at Antrice Wood. In today's episode, we have part two of my interview with Cameron Schmitz. If you haven't had a chance to listen to part one, you may want to go back so that it all makes sense. If you did listen to it, you might remember that Cameron is a painter originally from Greenwich, Connecticut. She has a studio in Massachusetts where she lives with her husband and daughter, and she actively exhibits her work across the country. She also teaches painting at the River Gallery School in Vermont, and she is the gallery curator at the Drawing Room Art Gallery in Koskov, Connecticut. As you can see, she is very active in the arts. In this episode, Cameron and I talk about the biggest mistakes artists make in pricing their work. We talk about some of the misconceptions that artists have about collectors, and we dig into what drives people to collect art. Cameron also shares how she balances her studio, her toddler, her teaching schedule, and how it has impacted her creativity. With everything she has going on, I'm wondering if she secretly wears a cape to manage all of it. Thanks again to Dean Fisher for presenting me to this woman. She is absolutely fantastic. Here we go, part two with Cameron Schmitz. You said earlier that you're not good at selling your own work, that it's so much easier for you to sell other people's work. I can absolutely identify with that because I can... Yeah, when I talk about other people's work, it's so much easier than right. talking about my own. So do you show your own work at your at your gallery? Do. How do you manage not, that? Yeah, not as frequently. So so we opened the gallery in November 2012. So I've shown my work in the gallery in two shows. Mm -hmm. I can talk about my work, but it's the actual closing the sale part that I don't feel really comfortable with. It's just a different kind of thing. I don't want to be pushy. I don't like pushing my artwork on someone else. Right. So if they are like, I want to buy this, I'm like, okay, now I'm going to have you speak to Danielle, my associate. So usually when someone's interested in my work, I, you know, they are handed off to me in terms of having that personal one-on-one -on -one dialogue. And then I kind of hand them off, back off. I don't know. I never want someone to feel like I'm being an opportunist yeah. or pressuring them to buy my own artwork. And, and so I often encourage, you know, talk about other art, artists in the same conversation. Um, but yeah, because we have a staff, a small staff, but it's not like I'm the only employee. So I, yeah. that's when I kind of say, all right, I'm going to have you speak with my associate Danielle and she'll handle the transaction or speak with you further. If you're interested in pursuing this artwork, if you have any other questions, please let me know. Got it. Yeah. Cetera, and then it doesn't feel like kind of like a conflict of interest or something right, somehow exactly. awkward. And yeah. how did you start the gallery? What made you decide to start that? It's just three, three years old. you said, Right. So I had been working for a gallery up in Vermont and it was kind of this funny kind of serendipity. Certainly it was a moment that I did not anticipate. I left that gallery with the intentions of actually spending more time in the studio. And I was also traveling a lot. So that gallery was located two hours north of me. And then I was also consulting two hours south of me. And so there was a lot of driving involved. And I was like, I would rather just kind of pare things down and yeah. simplify so my sister and brother-in-law who own the drawing room, they were expanding their business and moving essentially a portion of their business. So in the space where the gallery exists used to be the design showroom. They showed original artwork, but in addition to that, it's furniture. And it's essentially the showroom for their design services, as well as kind of gifts and accessories and that type of thing. Mm -hmm. So that business moved next door. And then they had this new this space that was essentially available. And they said, it seems like the natural thing to have an art gallery because they had always had art shows going on, but they'd never had a space that was purely designated for just, for just art. art. Yeah. And so that's when they got in touch with me. And, you know, we had talked about this kind of thing like years down the but it kind of seemed like a pipe dream. You yeah. know, it was kind of like, and they're like, we have the space. Will you run the gallery? And I was like, okay. So it was, it was a, and it happened literally in a matter of 30 days because it was wow. a matter, because the, the lease that this space that suddenly became available to them 
they were moving into really quickly. And so the space was quickly renovated to accommodate covering up windows to create more gallery walls. And it was this like really, it was so funny. I never thought that I would be working with my sister and brother-in-law. Yeah. I never thought all these things would be happening, you know, right. but it's been a really great experience and it's been wonderful. And I just, it's been so much fun. Oh, sounds like it. And is it part of the, did you say it's part of a restaurant or it's just next to? It's like three businesses. So the drawing room, there's three kind of different entities. There's the drawing room boutique. There's the drawing room cafe. And then there's the drawing room art gallery and the cafe and gallery are in the same building. And then the boutique slash design showroom is the next building over. So, and the design showroom is also where we show our artists work. And what's really interesting about that kind of relationship is that you know, we're not all visual people. And as an artist myself, I prefer seeing artwork in a gallery space where I can see a body of work. It's clean. There's not a lot of kind of visual distractions going on. But what's interesting is that after each gallery show, we dismantle a show, we'll return some works back to the gallery. We keep some works and a lot of works then are then swapped in into the boutique. And that's often when they sell. Oh, that's funny. And it's because people who are making purchases can't visualize people get really intimidated by yeah they can't conceptualize they see a body of work in a gallery and they can't envision how it's going to be in their home Mm -hmm. and when it's in a space that appears domestic because essentially in the boutique are like vignettes where we have a couch and a painting and they're like oh i love this you know right all this right here yeah and i used to you know, 10 years ago, I was critical at the concept of someone buying a painting of mine because it quote unquote matched the curtains of someone's home. Uh-huh. And I've come to realize that it doesn't matter. And if that's the reason that helps someone to get to gain the courage to invest in original work of art, that's uh-huh. okay. You know, and I've realized that again, we don't all see the world the same way. And so it's been really beneficial to have, you know, like, I think it's really important to show, again, the the work in the gallery, but it's been really interesting watching how things have evolved and seeing where the artwork and like what space the artwork is actually more frequently selling out of. Do you think there's a disconnect between the artist's and do you think there's a disconnect between the idea, the artist's idea of the collector and an actual real collector? Yeah, I mean, I think that we, I know that the collectors that we have are often emerging collectors. Mm-hmm. They're not necessarily people who have a ginormous budget for fine art. Right. They're, they're buying the artwork because they love the work. They're not buying the artwork because it's an investment. And that's probably one of the biggest things I think sometimes, and even in a location like Greenwich, Connecticut, where, you know, Costco, it's a village of Greenwich. I think sometimes people have the wrong idea. It's a very affluent area, certainly, but that doesn't mean that, like, I think we differentiate ourselves as a gallery because I think generally the artwork that we have there, you know, we're not the Gagosian gallery. We're not selling paintings that are a hundred thousand dollars. You know, we're, we're selling artwork to people that I think is still considered affordable. It's within reach. And I yeah. think that's really important to provide. And I know that as an artist myself, I I think about my pricing. I want my artwork. It's not about selling it. I want people to be able to afford my work. Right, right, so right. Have to, so it's this kind of tricky, tricky thing too for artists. It's like this fine line of figuring out that sweet spot, you know, where it's worth it. You need to make sure that you're covering all your costs and then yes. some. And not devaluing the work and certainly slowly building your market. But what I've discovered is that the collectors that we work with are really buying the work more because they love the piece, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. they can't live without it. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're learning about the artist for the first time. Right. And then we earn their trust and they come back and say, I'm looking for a piece of artwork in this space. Can you help me? Right, right. And do you find yourself helping the artists that you represent figure out their pricing? I often let artists dictate their price. But when artists do come to me saying, what do you think about this? I will share information about what other artists pricing is if to use as comparison and sometimes guide them, you know, like if they're saying I want to raise prices or, you know, here's what I'm thinking, then I'll say, well, maybe 
how about making a compromise here? Because I, I don't, it's not that I don't want to discourage artists from raising prices because I think that's an important part of one's career. But I'm an advocate of keeping things consistent and not raising prices too early. Mm-hmm. Not make your jump too big because you can't go back. Yes. Or you don't want to. Right. And so you want to be able to make those decisions at the right time, but you, you don't want to regret making those decisions. And I think sometimes it's important to gain, like if we have a new artist and they're not familiar, I would rather have to create more demand first, get the, get our collectors and get like to essentially create a market in that area for that artist's work. And then the t- that is when you have the demand is when you, raise the price of the work. Yeah. What do you think is a bigger mistake? The artist pricing too high or too low? Too low. Way too low. You know, I think the artists that are pricing really, really high are more established artists who have a reputation and are Mm -hmm. kind of, they're considered mid-career artists. That's less problematic because they've spent some time getting to that point where they're at. Mm-hmm. But there's certainly, I think the biggest problem is not necessarily pricing too low. I guess I'd take that back. The biggest price I've discovered is more inconsistency of pricing, meaning we'll get two paintings, same exact size, or two photographs, same exact size, totally different pricing, same materials. And although I understand an artist says, well, I spent twice as much time in that painting. I get that. Right. But that's hard for the public to understand. So it's kind of more effective when artists are pricing based on sizes. Mm -hmm. So if you spend twice as much time on that painting versus that, it doesn't matter. That happens. I find that sometimes I spend twice as much time on paintings that are like more time, like when you're thinking about like per capita of real estate. Yeah, per square inch. Yeah. Yeah. Like sometimes I do spend more time on the smaller paintings. And so I have my pricing is slightly inflated for smaller works price. It's weighted. Yeah. It's weighted a little bit more on the smaller works because yeah, I spend at a certain point, there's no difference in time for me. So I do a lot of uh, these little watercolors that are, you know, maybe five by five or three by three inches. And, um, and those will take me about the same amount of time as an eight by 10 oil painting, you know, so but I don't price them the same because in my mind, I understand that perception. Right. Trying to explain. So, you know, sometimes like, for instance, when they've had a photography show, photographers work in a different way where they are pricing each. It's like the same image, but a different edition. It's a different price. Mm -hmm. So if edition one sells and edition two is now available, that that print is now $400 more. Mm -hmm. Um, And that is they're kind of basically basing their pricing on that kind of supply and demand model. That can be problematic too, though. I mean, in some ways it does create a sense of urgency for the buyer saying, well, you know, if you don't buy it now, someone else is going to buy it. And because here's the reality is that what's confusing for people and almost kind of strange for photographers, edition one and edition two is this virtual Edition. It's not literally like an edition off of a printing press where you're handwriting edition one, edition two. We have the same photograph that another gallery in Santa Fe has. And the, that photograph, edition one sells in Santa Fe before the one that we have. All of a sudden we have edition two. Do you know what I mean? I could say I want edition. If you do have edition one available, because which would be like the most inexpensive one. Yes. Uh-huh. But if, if that same photograph sells somewhere else around the globe, all of a sudden we have a different edition. It's oh, that's bizarre, weird. It's a bizarre thing. It's kind of frustrating as a painter that I've had, we've been learning about, you know, as a gallery, it's like, well, this is awkward because we don't want to, we don't want the customer to feel like we're pulling the wool over their eyes. Like, yes, you came in yesterday and it was a thousand dollars less. Right. But that print just sold. And so now this is what this edition is. I kind of have a hard time with that. I would, I am a little bit more old school, traditional, and I like the idea of literal numbers yeah yeah on the the physical object you know yeah that seems yeah it's interesting i guess i'm glad as a painter that i don't have to deal with that (laughs) right yeah it's interesting but what what i certainly advise to a lot of artists is like try to keep consistency as much as possible if there's some discrepancy between give us the reason why so that we can communicate so for Mm -hmm. instance i could say you know the artist is incorporating gold leaf or 
there are certain materials involved that generally just raises the cost. People who don't make art need an explanation. Yeah. They need an explanation and we need to educate them and we want to make sure that we are as transparent as possible and we don't want them to think that we're screwing around with the numbers and, yeah, and yeah. The prices and Yeah. Yeah, because I mean when it comes down to it, most of the time in in the galleries the the majority I think of artists who are listening to this program are going to be dealing with are are galleries like yours for example where you're not selling $300,000 paintings. So it's a different market. And the people that are coming in are oftentimes buying their first or second, you know, they're still need help with the decision making. The education component is really important because they want to be reassured that they're not doing something stupid, you know? Exactly. Exactly. I think it's important for us to be able to kind of like hold our hand through that process and to to develop that level of trust Mm -hmm. and to make them have a clear understanding of the value of the piece. Right, right. And why it's valued in in the way that it is. Right. Because that is often, you know, like not necessarily questions from our collect, like people who are actually buying artwork, but like an opening reception or something, people say so you know people are are other artists sometimes they're curious how because we have a range of prices and and that is kind of what we want like I don't want I like there to be a range and that happens through showing both emerging versus established artists right but what's interesting is we had a plein air show two years ago and we had some really awesome little paintings that were super affordable. And Uh after the end of the show, I was surprised. I thought so many more paintings were going to sell. And they didn't. And they didn't. And then we have other shows where the price points are much higher and those do sell. And it's like, huh, what's going on here? But I have to say that I think that has more to do with size. What we've discovered, well, two things. One is when it comes down to it, people, maybe price doesn't matter. And people are willing to spend, like if someone has a budget of say, $1,000 $1,000 or $2,000, maybe they would have a budget for $4,000 or, you know, I mean, we don't know how loose their budgets are, but I think a lot of it has to do with also if someone's going to invest in a work of art, like, you know, spend the money on purchasing an original work of art, sometimes they want to go, they want more bang for their buck. So they want a high visual impact piece. Mm-hmm. They want the showstopper in their house where they can invite their friends over and say, mm-hmm. this is the painting I just bought. That takes yeah. up more real estate in the yeah. space. And so maybe, and thus, the bigger you get, the more expensive the piece gets too. Right. Yeah. So, and I also wonder if they're, if they're buying sometimes for wall space too. Like I have this, this area that I need a painting for. So I'm looking for about this size. Right. And it's not necessarily about matching the couch, but it is like, right. this is the, you know, quote unquote real estate that definitely. I have. That definitely is criteria that comes into play when people come to us saying, this is what we're looking for. This is the space. These are the dimensions. Right. From your experience, you kind of alluded to this. Um, your experience in the gallery, why do you think, aside from, oh my God, that's beautiful, why do you think people buy paintings? Well, yeah, I mean, that's a challenging question because I certainly know why I buy, my husband and I, when we buy paintings, we love we want to build a collection that mm-hmm. are other artists. I cannot wait to take paintings of my own down in our house. I mean, it's like, you know, here is the museum of Cameron Schmitz, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, but we treasure the, the paintings that we have of other artists and we love them and we, we love showing them to people when they come over. And, um, but for the reasons that other people buy works, I mean, I think it, I think once people like you get a bug, once you, own a work of art, you realize how much it impacts a space and your life and how much meaning it provides and the people that enter that space. And so once you've gotten a little taste of that, you realize how different a room feels. Like I feel really uncomfortable in spaces that don't, like if I'm going to someone's home and there's like nothing on the walls, I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> it's glaring at me. It's painful. Yeah. Can I lend you some artwork, you know, or I mean, it's amazing what a difference it makes and how it just makes a room feel alive. It mm-hmm. just gives the room and the space and the home spirit. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so I think for some people, 
like there's different reasons, certainly like for some people, they just love the piece and they love the colors and it's inspiring to them for other people. They're certainly incentivized by like, I'm having a party. I have to finish all these things. I need to complete this room or I, you know, they want to impress people. Right. So there's certainly that component I think that's involved. And then there's other people who, you know, there's some people that we work with, which was like an ideal situation. It certainly doesn't happen often enough, but they're like, can you help curate our home? We don't want all the same artists. We want different artists from different places and they want to learn about the artists and they essentially do treat their home like a kind of like a museum. And oh, they have, how fun to do really, that. It's awesome. And it's really interesting how like the children are involved in the decision making and the, the, you know, like we worked with this family where the kids got to like, you know, their, their opinions mattered. Right. Right. Oh my God. And how, what a great experience for the kids to be able to help pick out artwork for the yeah. home. And they got to pick artwork for their own room. It was really cool. I was like, wow, that is awesome. They're getting artwork for the room. Like I felt like, wow, they're so sophisticated, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So I want to talk a little bit about your work now. What have you, so so, this is this is an audio program, so I can't talk about the paintings I see behind you on the wall. They're so juicy. But let's start with like, um, yeah, tell me about tell me about your artwork and what you're working on now. So this body work that I've been working on was kind of unexpectedly triggered after having my daughter Winslow. So in October 2013, I had a baby, and I, you know, when you ask some of the artists like setbacks, that was a setback that I anticipated. So I moved my studio home because I said, there's no way in heck that I'm like lugging a baby into downtown, you know, to the fourth floor without an elevator, setting my pack and play. Like I knew that I needed my studio to be accessible so that I could just jump in at any point. And, but I also told myself, okay, take as much time as you need before getting back into the studio. Like I knew it was going to happen overnight Mm -hmm. and it didn't happen overnight, but it happens much sooner than I expected. And when I came back into my studio, which were landscapes, I was totally disengaged with the work. I looked at the work differently. They all looked really dark to me. It was Mm. really strange. Now, granted I was painting in the woods at the time. And so they were a different kind of light, but I didn't relate to the work anymore. I wasn't excited about it. And I didn't, it didn't make me want to paint. And so I just, first I went into a painting and just was like, this is all wrong. And I just started problem solving. And then, then I put it away. Then the next week, because I essentially had like one day where I could go into the studio and paint, you know, and where my, actually my mother-in-law came, this is when Winslow was home with me. So this is before she went to daycare. I would, I cleaned my studio and then I was like, I'm just, I don't even know what I'm going to paint, but I'm just going to like mix colors that I love and just put them on the canvas and have fun. And it was funny because that's not how I would typically work. Usually I, with all my landscapes, I I would have a real plan. Mm -hmm. If I didn't have a plan, the painting didn't work out. But this time I was just like, I'm just going to start flinging paint on the canvas and just have fun. Right. And I was so excited. Um, The painting was totally abstract and I was like, whoa, you know, and then I could not get, wait to get back into the studio. So I was, you know, again, this is when Winslow was home. So I'd have Winslow in the carrier and go into the studio. And when I was painting, because, you know, when you have a baby, you're like bouncing around. And <laughs> moving, I was painting like totally, you know, my paint, like my, for instance, compare like a different series of my work, which was text-based, which was like super controlled, super like, OCD, you know, where I had to be very kind of quiet and meditative to make the work. This kind of work was like really physical. I had to move around and I was really interested in the kind of lyricism that was created through these movements of like having, moving her. Uh-huh. I had to keep leaving the studio and coming back because I had to give her new things to look at. Uh-huh. And as a result, I realized that I wasn't killing my paintings to death. Like one of my weaknesses as a painter is trying to overly refine. Yeah, yeah. And when I look at my process stages of my paintings, I'm like, oh shit. It was so much better, like two paintings ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to death. You know, why? Like, why didn't I just leave it there before? And I do it again and again. And then all of a sudden I wasn't doing that because I had to leave. Like I right. couldn't, I couldn't spend any more, any more time. My studio had to go. And so that was a real learning lesson for me too. It was like, this is awesome. These limitations that I suddenly have are actually benefiting my painting. Wow. And so, did you worry, just out of curiosity, cause this is a question that's come up before. It's, did, 
before you had your daughter, did you worry about how that would having a child would impact your art? Definitely. And I think that's part of the reason why I kind of like pushed it off as late as I could mm-hmm. in the sense of my husband was like, let's have babies. And I was like, no, 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 wait, I have a whole, I need, I have to make a body of work first. I have things I need to do. It was always because of my art. That was always the reason because I felt like I needed to invest more. I I wasn't ready yet. And I knew I didn't, well, the biggest thing is I didn't want to have resentment towards my child because I wasn't able to paint. So right. I needed to put myself into a place where I was like, okay, I'm ready. And I did get to a place where it was in some ways like it, the timing worked out well in that regard where I felt like I was ready and I was like, okay, let's do this. And maybe it was because maybe I just knew prior to like having her that I was becoming less excited about my painting that I was like, I need a change in my life or something. Uh Uh My artwork has always mimicked my life in that way. My artwork has gone through major evolutions. And sometimes I, you know, I've, I've always said like, oh gosh, I wish I was the type of artist who just made one type of artwork. It would make it so much easier. People say, why don't you do what you did before? I love that. I'm like, I know. I like, you know, cut off my nose to spite my face. People love what I do and they respond to it. And I sell. And then you change. Like, psych, I'm going to do this. Now. And I'm going to start all over and I'm going to just throw a wrench in the whole thing. But I've realized that I'm just, that's just me. I need to keep evolving and changing and developing. I'd like to be excited and, and feel like I'm discovering something new. And so with this body of work that's primarily kind of non-objective abstraction, you know, I'm so excited about painting. I'm more excited about painting than I have been in years. It's just, I feel challenged and scared out of my mind. You know, there's days uh-huh. that I'm like, shit, what am I doing? This is great. Like I'm feel really, you know, scared because I know that I'm taking chances and I'm, I'm doing something that is out of my comfort zone. But at the same time, I know I'm the fact that I'm feeling so challenged and I feel so engaged tells me that it's the right thing. Yeah, sometimes when something really scares the crap out of me, I'm like, all right, gotta do it. Yeah. <laughs> I like this, yeah, like more of the more of a reason that I need to be doing this. Yeah. So it's an interesting path, and it's been really, you know, and what's been awesome for me to see is, you know, for me growing up, I didn't have a lot of role models in terms of female artists. Uh-huh. You know, I saw my mother who had a career as, you know, I grew up, my parents were entrepreneurs. They had their own business. It was a fabric store that evolved into an interior decorating business. And I spent my mornings and afternoons there and watched them as business owners. And I watched my mom kind of put her own artwork on the back burner. And for the sake of their business and for raising my sister and I, but um, so I think I really appreciate that and I respect that, but that's something that I'm like, I need to make sure I'm always making my work. Mm-hmm. One of my goals as an artist is I want to be a hardworking professional artist and simultaneously being a good mother. Mm-hmm. Not just a mother. A good, a good one. Yeah. You read about artists like Alice Neal who had children and the documentary about her is like really sad, you know, like her sons are like, she was not really there for them. Right. And I love her work and I respect that about her because she put her career first. And as a woman artist, I think that's really important for artists like her to have paved the way for other artists. But at the same time, I believe that it's a misconception. I think that it can be done and I'm determined that I, and I've discovered that I'm like, wow. I never thought that actually having a child would help inspire my work. After Winslow was born, I thought, oh God, I have no time to develop a new idea or concept. Mm-hmm. What do I do now? And then it just kind of happened. Um, and how, wait, how old is Winslow now? She is a year and a half now. She's 18 okay. months. Oh, so she's at that age. So how do you manage that with an 18 month old? How do you? Well, I don't have her at home with me every day. So that's, I mean, when she was eight months, seven eight months old, she went to daycare. So she goes to daycare four days a week. So that is a big part of it. Uh-huh. Certainly I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing if she was home with me. No way. And hack. It's one thing to have a baby and a carrier painting in a studio, but there's no way that I could have a toddler. No. Just, yeah. That wouldn't work. Yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> so like that would be crazy. <laughs> but she did. She does love coming in the studio. I'm like, no. you would have entirely different paintings and be like mommy and me (laughs) her like rolling in cadmium yellow I'd be like oh god (laughs) and my husband's really you know he understands he's he's awesome like on Mother's Day last year he was 
on a Sunday. He was like, I'm going to take Winslow on a hike. And yeah, I just, you just, just paint in the studio. I'm like, thank you. You get it. You know, I mean, so I say <laughs> I paint a lot less than I used to, but mm-hmm. my time is more efficient and I work more efficiently now. So I paint only in the mornings. I paint my husband and my daughter leave most days at like seven, a little bit after 7 a.m. So I literally walk into my studio with my pajamas on and mm-hmm. like get right to work. I kind of steal time from other, like there are some days that I'm like, I don't shower. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's because that's like 45 minutes that I can use towards making my artwork. There are certain compromises that we have to make as artists. For me, some of the comp- compromises we make are on a financial level. We don't live a life of luxury. We are really, we live a simple life and we make those choices so that I, so that we can do the things that we want to do. I don't compare myself against friends who are business executives, you know, flying all around the world. And I think that's awesome, but I, I have to keep my eye on the prize in terms of just staying focused and keeping focus of what my goals are. And that's just to make, to make artwork. And so, you know, there's certain choices like my time, you know, I, I carve out painting time as much as possible. So often that happens in the morning, but sometimes that happens after I put her to bed. You right. know, it's like sometimes I am burning, burning the candle at both ends, but I'm okay with that. And it's working. Yeah. Somehow. Yeah. yeah. Well, it sounds like, I mean, when you said that you paint less, but you're more efficient at it. I mean, you could be physically painting, but not really getting a lot of work done. So do you find that since having her, you're kind of forced to be ultra focused and do you think your painting has improved? I do. I go in with intention now where I used to spend long days in the studio. Like when I had full days in the studio, I would just, I didn't realize it at the time, but I kind of farted around, you know, I would paint, I would take breaks. I would check my email. I would, Oh, I should update my website. Oh, I should do this. And I would distract myself all the time. And email was awful. And now I say I have three hours to paint and I'm not doing anything else. I'm not. And it's great in the morning because I have, I'm not thinking about anything else. My mind is fresh. There's not the kind of like burdens and distractions that come with later in the day when you have to respond to emails. Um, I'm just in a different place mentally, but I also go in there and I look at my painting and I say, this is what I have to do. And so I have real kind of concise goals. And if I don't know what I'm going to do to a painting, then I'm going to do something else you know, gessoing canvases or like doing busy work. That's not actual creative work. Right. Right. And I need to do. Yeah. Very cool. Oh my God. This is like a chock full <laughs> conversation. <laughs> hmm. What's your dream project? If there was no restrictions on time or money, what would you create? I, you know, it's, I, it wouldn't necessarily be specific to the work. I would love to build my own studio. Mm. Like I have like so many dream studios in mind and I would love, I've always thought right now I'm like starting to crowd myself at a studio. I'm like, I need a bigger space, you know, because <laughs> I'm working big and I just want to keep going bigger and bigger and bigger because it makes me so like, I love working large because I become so physically engaged with the work. It requires me to move. Yes, I love what happens from that. And when the work becomes almost bigger than you, I just love that relationship of the artist to the work. And anyways, you know, I love printmaking. I love drawing. There's all these other disciplines that I I just don't have time and space. In school, I learned, you know, kind of more traditional forms of printmaking or like intaglio etching and that type of thing. But a few years ago, I learned screen printing. And I just, it was one of those things where I felt really bummed after I learned this process. I took a couple classes and then I'm the type of person I need repetition. And if I don't keep practicing it, I, I forget it all. It doesn't kind of. Ah, uh, okay. And I didn't have the perfect setup at home. And so I felt like it was a missed opportunity for me where I didn't really capitalize on this new skill where you're really like, when you learn something new, you start kind of generating all these ideas and you can really ride out this train of momentum that happens from that, which is really exciting. I think I kind of missed that opportunity because I just didn't have the right setup. And certainly that's an excuse, but I would love a studio where I have like a section where I can do my drawing, a section where I do my painting, a section mm-hmm. where like a clean space where you do framing and that type of thing. I would love a section where I can teach and have other students working in my studio. Like I have artists who ask, you know, if they like, I would love to have artists come and work in my studio, uh. but obviously it's limiting. I love the idea of having events in in my yeah. studio at this space <laughs> to provide that you know you could have like little openings and 
I think that's such a cool way, like involving the community. People love visiting student artist studios, yes. you know, and I would love the opportunity to do that. But yeah, that's my dream project is like either turning our barn into a studio or I, you know, on Pinterest, I like, like oh, artist studios. Yes. Artist studios. And I'm like, oh, that would be awesome. I look at like these different storage spaces. Yeah. Like, I, yeah. I'm like, it's so funny. These things like storage. Yes. That'd be awesome. You know, <laughs> that's what happens is like when I start, I notice that when I get cluttered, I become less productive. That's yeah. why. I, Actually, exhibiting is really great for me because, like, the work goes out. Like, that's why, like, selling in some ways is helpful for me because, like, the work is gone and I'm like, it's like purging. <laughs> yeah, and it you you literally make space to create more work. Oh yeah. You start when it starts accumulating. I find that you're like looking at your work, the work that you made, as opposed to just making new work. Oh. So what? I would love a huge studio. Oh uh, yeah, I'm right with you. <laughs> Do you have a, a painting that you've painted that you will always keep? There's a few paintings I have. Um, there's a few figurative paintings that I have that are really special to me that I think I would have a hard time letting go of. It's interesting. Like there's some paintings, there's a couple paintings that like, for instance, there's I have one painting left of my text-based series. Uh-huh. I love that series, by the way. Things. That didn't sell. And I'm like, so glad it didn't sell. Sometimes that, that happens. I, it's happened to me more than once where I'm like, oh my God, maybe there's a reason why this didn't sell. Like I was supposed to have this, you know, it's wonderful to have these pieces that remind me of a certain time in my life. And they also are really like, sometimes I'm like, wow, I did that. You know, it's <laughs> like more often than that, I'm kind of like impressed. Like that was actually better than I remembered, you know? And sometimes I'm like, shit, I am stupid. I should still be doing that. But um, yeah, there's, there's certain figurative paintings. Like I did a series of figures, actually of friends, this maybe like four years ago that were pregnant that I have one or two paintings left that I loved. And it was just like, they were coming to visit me. And I've always thought that pregnant women were so beautiful. Yeah. Like, ever since I was a kid, I just like, you know, it's like this Venus figure, like this beautiful bulbous belly. And I, I love flesh. Like I love painting the flesh. I, I'm a believer that, you know, oil painting was made, made to paint, you know, like the flesh. It's so, yeah, it's yeah. so viscous and visceral and juicy that I just, it speaks to flesh and human body. And, um, I just, um, I love the figure. So yeah, there's a few, uh, figure paintings that I have that I think I would have a hard time letting go of. Yeah. Yeah. So, if you could own a piece of art by any living artist, what would it be or whose? There's a few artists. Well, you know, there's certainly, a, there's a lot of artists that we show whose work I, you know, can't afford, but I would love. We just um, showed this artist, Chris Gallego, Christopher Gallego. His um, work is, is amazing. I would love one of his drawings. He makes these huge life-size, I mean, he works both in large and small, but I just love, I remember first seeing his work at the Seraphim gallery in Philadelphia and Pine street, just down the street from where I lived and just walking into the gallery. And just, I describe his work as bringing you to your knees. It's just Ooh. the way that he captures light and the essence of space and the kind of spirit of space. Like there's a real kind of um, poetry in the work and they embody so much life. Like you feel like there's like, they're often these spaces, empty rooms, you know, they're often like these beautiful say studio space with light reflecting on the floorboards and, mm. you know, really simple spaces, but the way that he captures light is just so stunning and remarkable. His drawing and his painting is beautiful, but there's just something about the drawing itself. They're just astounding. And you get up close, you can really see how he made the piece. I like seeing the artist's hands in the work. You know, I like looking at a painting from afar and you're like, oh yeah, this is what I see. And the closer you get, it just dissolves. Dissol oh yeah. Yeah. You know, into brush strokes or just marks. And that is really cool to me. I think that is what the best works of art that I've seen are the type of work that has multiple points of view. Yeah, different vantage points. You have different experiences. And then I would say there's certainly a few artists. There's this artist, uh, Claire Sherman, whose work I just recently became really interested in. She does um, 
you know, her work is based in representation, but you know, I, I definitely like, there's a lot of painters that I'm interested in whose work occupies, I think both abstraction and realism. Mm -hmm. So her work is kind of like entrenched in representation in the sense that like a lot of these spaces, you can certainly feel where you are, but she's doing these things in terms of the way that she creates shapes through her marks, the way that she's using her brush and the way that these various kind of like the tonalities that she's achieving and the color and the space is really interesting. It's very, it feels very contemporary, but they're really interesting paintings to look at and the way that she kind of breaks it down. Um, And then Stuart Schills, I love. We actually have two monotypes of his, but I would love a painting of his. Yeah. And uh, Jenny Seville is an artist who I've always loved. I mean, as a student, she was so inspiring to me. I think I kind of prefer her older work from, say, like the late 90s, early 2000s. I mean, her work... The really, has, like, close-up faces. There's some of the... Like, there are, like, the bodies where they're, like, the figures looking down. And there's just, like, the, the beautiful colors and tonalities that she describes in the flesh are just so remarkable. And as you reach the knees and the fingertips, how it becomes kind of really hot and red. Yeah. But there are some... The ones the of cheek, her faces uh, are yeah. amazing, too. And, again, she's a painter who... I have a book on her, and some of these close-ups of these paintings are just remarkable when you look up close and they're just there's such confidence in the work and the way that she's applying she's such a mentor painter to me and this is something that I try to do myself and also instill in my students is being really thoughtful with each brushstroke mm-hmm. and I think a lot of times painting can be so cathartic. We're like rubbing the canvas and massaging it with our brushes. <laughs> and instead of just saying, I'm going to load my brush up and I'm just going to put it down and pull it off. That's really hard to do. You have to be really focused to do that because you just can't help but push it around because it feels so good, you know? Yeah, yeah. Who was <laughs> it that I'm thinking of that would, it's not Lucian Freud, but basically his method was he only wanted to touch the canvas once with each loaded brush, you know, so he would just put it down and that was it. He would not touch it again. It's really hard to do. Yeah. It requires so much, so much restraint, restraint, conviction, and confidence all at the same time. Yeah. Like you have to make sure that color note is right. Um, and you're really committing to that stroke, you know? Yeah. It's interesting when I see painters who just nail it, you know, they've been working years and years and years that they have that ability where they just, they're on and they just like, and so I was looking at a painting of hers the other day, which actually was a kind of a close up, which was kind of more of the kind of more visceral, but I, you know, there's certain paintings that I just love that do border both beauty and grotesque. grotesque. Yeah. 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 And she's certainly one of those artists where, She's a painter's painter, I think, you know, she forces us to fall in love with really disturbing subject matter through the material mm-hmm. where we fall in love with the painting and it kind of accept what we're looking at because she's engaged you through the material itself. Yes. Oh my gosh. Um, yeah. Jerome Whitkin's another one like that. That is yeah. for me, his paintings are so hard to look at. I mean, there's, right. I, I mean, like it's as a painter, you you want to look at them and look really close and then you're realize that, you know, not, you can't help but realize what the content is. And, you, and, you right. know, so there's a simultaneous attraction and revulsion, which I'm right. sure is what he's going right. for. But exactly. Yeah. There's some of his paintings that are like super creepy and you're like, what is going on? You know, what just happened? The narratives are really interesting yeah. in his book too. Yeah. And the light. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously his intention, he paints if, People aren't familiar with it. You paint scenes from the Holocaust and what was going on. And uh, I mean, he paints a lot of stuff, but that's in particular what I'm thinking about. If you were ever to stop and think about what actually happened to people there, he gives it to you in full color. (laughs) 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 And and it is uh, just phenomenally executed, but so hard to look at. It just makes me cry. Right. Yeah. I mean, right. I think some, those are the, some of the best painters that, do force us to look at things that we wouldn't look at otherwise, but engage us in a way that, I mean, they physically and psychologically engage us. And I think that's why the material for me as a painter is such an important part of the work. 
it's something that I can't deny. And that's something that I thought I've thought a lot about is, you know, there's a reason why I use oil paint and it is because of that kind of physical body to the paint and the kind of viscous material. It's, it's something that it speaks to me. You know, sometimes I wonder, is it because, you know, having experience as an athlete, I'm someone who really is, um, I like to move. I've, I like using my body and I like when my body becomes engaged with my work. I like what happens when I can start painting from what I said, like when I'm painting big and I'm, my body is doing the work more than my mind. I find that that sometimes is my more, more successful painting moments when I just let my body do its thing. Mm. Like when, when I'm drawing, you know, when you're using line and you're just, when you think about gestural drawing, when you really get into that flow and you're like getting inside and outside the body and kind of moving in and out, you, your body is moving with the line. You're like, like dance, right? It's, it's like a you're... total dance. Yeah. Those are the best moments for me. That is so such an exciting part of painting. You know, I think painting really small has many advantages too. I love the way that it forces you to kind of simplify and be really specific with the marks. And in some ways, I think I probably should work smaller because that would help me with my problem of overly refining. Sometimes yeah. I'm going bigger. But um, working small is super intellectual. You're using so much of your mind where when you're working bigger, you have, you're inevitably having to huh. use more of your body. And I think different things come from that. The results are slightly different because you inevitably have to engage physically and stretch and move. And I think there's something that happens there, which is interesting to me. That is interesting. Wow. I hadn't thought of it that way. I mean, that's a really interesting way of articulating it. And yeah, I don't know. I find that I like painting very, very small, like two inches by two inches or really big. I do a lot of eight by tens, but every time I do them, I, you know, oftentimes I'll tell my husband, like, I'm not doing those anymore. They're not small enough. They're not big enough. But I mean, I want to do like, you know, like eight feet by eight feet and, you know, like really paint with your whole shoulder as opposed to, you know, like being constrained to these tiny little movements. Right. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem. Like I do these interviews and I start talking to people and I'm like. All right, I gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got, I'm working. I have to do. I want to paint. <laughs> <laughs> totally. It's so funny. Oh my God, no, I have that same experience too. Sometimes being so excited when I'm teaching, sometimes getting so excited oh. with my students, and I'm like, oh God, like I need to get. You know, it's like some of them are like, you should just paint here, and I'm like. You know, I can't. I just wouldn't be able to stop, and I would. I would. I would ignore a really you, awful totally. teacher, because I wouldn't be giving anyone feedback and would be ignoring everyone. But you get so revved up. I think that's awesome. That um, says a lot. You know that you are in this place where you are inspired to make work, and that's great. Yeah, not a oh. bad problem to have. No, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. What advice would you give to yourself, the artist that you were ten years ago? I would describe myself as someone who's really critical of my own work. When I moved to Vermont in 2006, 2007, I didn't have like a real large community with the exception of when I was at the Vermont studio center, but I didn't have a real large community of artists. And so I kind of acted as all these critics in my mm-hmm. head to my thing, like what would this person say? And what would this person? And I think the problem with that is I, I would often say to myself, this is a bad idea before I even allowed myself to explore that idea. So my advice to myself, you know, would be to be less critical, allow yourself to play and experiment. Don't judge. Don't worry about what others would think. It doesn't matter. Just make the work and don't think about it. I think that's sometimes has been my fault in the, in the past is like overthinking it. Just mm. make the work, you know, and who cares what other people think, you know, think, oh, you know, imagining, well, this person would probably say this about this and being really judgmental about my own work and being really critical. And I thought that I was doing myself a service by doing that because like, so if I can be as critical to my own work as possible and as judgmental as possible, when it goes out into public, I'll be fine. Anyone can say anything. And I've already said it to myself already. I'm totally <laughs> cool. I'm preparing myself for the worst so that I don't feel vulnerable. I think it's a kind of form of like self-protection. These are all the things that people could possibly think about it. So now you know. 
you know. All right. So, oh my gosh, that's funny. And so it'll be okay. You can deal with it when those things are said. But I've realized that in the end, it doesn't matter. And those things were never said. And I am my worst critic. Yeah. And that's sometimes, I mean, that's just the way that it, that it is. But I've realized that over time, it's less important to me. And it's that gets in the way. Right. I just need to shut that off and just keep working and disengage with that voice. Oh, yes. Which is hard to do, but it's important to at least recognize. Absolutely. Absolutely. Can you, this is the last question, can you describe a single habit that you strongly believe contributes to your success? I would say, and I know hearing some of your podcasts before, a lot of what's been said resonates with me and I think holds true. I I think discipline is such a huge part of it. You know, I, I brought up the athletics and I certainly think that has helped form me as an artist. I played college field hockey, had a scholarship to play field hockey. And I remember at UNH to do receive a BFA, you have to do a fifth year, which was the best thing that could have happened to me because that allowed me a year to just focus and dive into my art entirely. Oh, wow. And it was the first time in my life I had ever experienced that because I kind of felt like I always put my artwork on the back burner. And part of it was I got away with it because I could. Like I was always doing my homework for my art classes at the last minute and I could pull it off. But I always felt guilty about it. And it was the first time that I felt like I could totally devote myself to my art and my athleticism was kind of a chapter that had closed in my life. And I was excited about that. I wasn't sad about that. My career being over, I was like, now is when I start this. I feel like what did carry over was the kind of discipline of practicing and going in day in and day out with goals. Mm, With goals. Yeah, just like, this is my goal and this is how I get there. And knowing that there's shitty days and there's better days, but you still practice, you know, I mean, there's days that are harder, there's days that are easier. And I even think about other artists as my teammates in many ways, we're all striving for a common goal. Uh huh. And it's our responsibility, and not maybe not our responsibility, but I think my responsibility to kind of help and su- support and promote other artists in achieving their goals. And I know that it will come around for me too. And we all have slightly different roles. And we all may be taking slightly different approaches. But we're all going to the same place. So I don't feel competitive with other artists. We're maybe on different tracks. I think so much about my experiences as an athlete carries over to my own studio practice. I'm focused and I'm disciplined. And I have made a commitment to myself at some point. I don't remember when, but it was like, this is what I'm going to do and nothing's going to stand in my way. Right. And I just have to keep working at it and keep developing myself and practicing and, and that's it. That's the frustrating thing for me sometimes when teaching, when I see younger students who don't have the discipline yet. Right. See how much potential they have. And I want to pull it out of them, but I just, they just need to keep that, you know, you need to work hard and you need to just keep going at it. Yeah. They have to go through it. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Cameron, it was so great to meet you. I hope we stay in touch. Absolutely. No question about it. Cool. Very cool. Thanks so much for taking all that time with me, but that was really, really fun. It's been such a pleasure. I feel, again, I'm absolutely honored that to be included in your podcast. I think it's an incredible thing that you're doing. I'm so excited for you. And I'm just, (laughs) just like so excited to hear all the future podcasts that you'll be putting out because it makes my driving so much more pleasure. I feel like I'm not, (laughs) not wasting my life i'm like i'm growing while i'm driving this is brilliant this is fantastic but really you're you're providing a service to people that um is truly remarkable and i thank you and i oh. i'm you know again i'm so touched that you reached out to me so i you know i appreciate you letting me be a part of this larger wonderful thing that you're creating it's awesome oh absolutely well dean put the bug in my ear Dean Fisher. He is awesome. Too. <laughs> He's one of those artists. You know, I said to Dean, I said, and I said this in a recent Facebook post, it's one thing to promote artists work who you really love, but it just brings it to a whole totally different level when those artists are just really kind, sincere and generous people. Mm-hmm. And that's like one of the most, it like almost brings tears to my eyes. Artists like Dean, you know, you know, I'm so appreciative of artists who come to the openings and our participants and really put forth effort. And that's something that I've learned advice for myself 10 years ago would be to actually go to make sure you go to all your opening receptions. Like as a young artist, I thought, you know, it was about building my resume and mm. like trying to get as many shows as possible. 
when I was, you know, in my twenties, I was waiting tables at night and those opening receptions are at night and I couldn't always get the night off. And I am embarrassed looking back at those times because when artists don't attend opening, now granted when people are living across the country, I don't expect them to fly. Right. Come. I am so thankful for the artists that are generous with their time and giving and also make wonderful art. I just feel like it makes them so much more extraordinary. I love their artwork even more when I learn about them as a person and when I find out that they're just really kind, appreciative people. I mean, Dean is so, you know, what I've also, not to make this a longer situation for you, (laughs) Andrea, I'll let you go, but... I just want to say that what, one thing I've learned is artists that are more mature and more experienced are artists that are often such a pleasure to work with. Yeah. And I think it's because and they, they express such appreciation for kind of a service that the gallery provides where younger artists kind of take it for granted. Artists coming, younger artists, maybe coming out of school, have these kind of expectations. Yeah. And I'm laughing like, because oh, I'm yeah. just thinking about how I was when I got out of school. Oh, Yeah. Like you think, you're cool. And I mean, I remember like thinking, yeah, I don't know. I just didn't appreciate the work that goes into showing my work. And I'm embarrassed for openings that I didn't attend. You know, it's like, Oh God, that was so not again. I, I can't take back the past, but I realized that it's just, you would do it differently now. I would do it differently now. And it's such a gift to be able to share artists work who are really good people. And it makes me, teaches me as a person and as an artist how important it is to be a good person in this world and to treat other people with respect and to be appreciative of other people's time. I think these are all things that you could make the greatest artwork in the world, but if you're a really shitty person, I think that will impact one's career. I'd like to to believe that. Oh, it absolutely does. I totally agree with that. And um, whether they're aware of, I think most of the time, if you're like that, you're not really aware of it, but... um, yeah, the way that you interact with the, with other artists and, and galleries is, you know, it is true that what goes around comes around. And also just by naturally um, reaching out and creating genuine relationships with people, you're, um, all you're doing is growing your ability to sell your art, sell your art, make your art. You know, all those things that, and, and be inspired by other people and be introduced to other artists that you may not have otherwise heard of. All that stuff comes from just basic common sense saying please and thank you. I mean, that sounds so silly, but. Right. Or like sending a personal note. Things that, I don't know, I was raised to do as a kid, but it happens less often, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So when you do do, people notice it. Absolutely. I'm thinking off the top of my head, uh, Gabe Fernandez, um, we talked a lot about that in that interview of how his relationship with his gallery and how just being a decent person has really helped his career. Mark Trujillo. Um, had a story about that of just, you know, I think all he did was say thank you to somebody who had done something nice to him for him, um, one of his professors and, um, and that person remembered it and introduced him to a gallery that ended up being, you know, like a major part of his career. I mean, and it's so like, you don't, yeah, it's so, it's so simple. And, you know, like both Gabe and, and Mark, they didn't, they're not thinking like, oh, I'm going to, you know, kiss this person's butt so that later on, they're just naturally that way. And that genuine, naturally how you are people. I mean, you can't fool people like you can for a short time, but people, people know. And when you're genuinely a good person, then people genuinely want to help you. And you're probably genuinely helping everybody else. So absolutely. It's so um, true. Like when, when, you know, I meet an artist who's just such a wonderful person, I'm like, I want to sell your work. You know, like (laughs) I want to like, Scream from the mountaintops about you and let everyone know. Yeah. You know, you're awesome. And people need to know that, you know, and it's, and I, I, and I think in many ways you can't, and to that degree, you really can't separate the artist from the work that they make. Right. But that's a whole nother conversation. So we're going to go into like round three. (laughs) (laughs) I'll let you go, Andrews. Thank you so much. It's been so much fun. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) All right. Go paint. (laughs) Go to SavvyPainter.com where you will see examples of Cameron's work, photos of the drawing room, and links to her website, as well as how you can connect with her on social media. 
If you like this episode and you find inspiration in what I bring to the artist community, please consider making a modest donation at SavvyPainter.com forward slash support. This podcast is a labor of love, and I'm so grateful for all of your support. Until next time, this is Anne Trace Wood with the Savvy Painter Podcast. Thank you so much for listening.